It's great to be with you again. If you'd find uh, Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles, and we'll be putting in verse 24, Luke 22 and 24 this morning. And we'll read just uh, seven short verses this morning, beginning in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But is not this way with you? But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom I grant you. Our text uh, finds us today just merely hours before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Just hours. Just a short time before the pinnacle, the, the epitome of redemptive history was about to take place. And and before that, though, in, in this, this night, having shared the Last Supper together, with his disciples, you know, Jesus had talked about his coming death. Jesus, in the same time, had talked about the fact that he would be betrayed. And surprisingly, during this meal, this Passover meal, Jesus stooped down and washed their dirty feet. He also inaugurated a new covenant in His blood. I mean, so if if this was the night before, it's hard to imagine a more significant, a more uh, pregnant, if you will, time than this. And so, presumably, uh, even though this was such a a time of of, of eternal significance and and somber contemplation with the disciples, presumably somewhere between this upper room and where they were going to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would pray. Somewhere uh, in, uh, in there, um, presumably, incredibly, an argument breaks out amongst the disciples. And it's of all things, who is to be the greatest among them? Can you imagine the setting of the, the somber time of the... Of, of the Last Supper, and then on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would pray and His tears would drop, as they said, like great drops of blood. And yet the disciples are having an argument about who's the greatest. And so Jesus seizes this opportunity to teach about greatness, about the two contrasting kinds of greatness and two contrasting kingdoms where that greatness is sought. And express greatness in the kingdom of the world contrasted with true greatness in the kingdom of God. And you might be saying to yourself, well, 
you know, that lets me out. Uh, you know, sometimes you come to a sermon and you go, well, this is not one, it's not about me. Because I have no, you know, real aspirations of being great. And if I did, I wouldn't talk about them. And even if I talked about them, I certainly wouldn't argue about them. But I think this is more universal. I'm positive this is more universal than we're, we're willing to admit this. And it, it, it's really um, easy to illustrate. But first of all, just among the disciples, this happened at least four times during Jesus' ministry. It might have been more than that. It's hard to really parse that out. But this was something that came up all the time about greatness in the kingdom. I mean, it's found, at, like I said, at least in four other places. And sometimes it would just start as a discussion, but it almost always broke into an argument amongst the disciples. And, you know, we know enough about those guys to know that there were all kinds of personality types, all kinds of temperaments. And, but Jesus chose on each of those occasions to address all of the disciples, not just the two that might happen to have kicked off the argument or the discussion. So I think it's safe to say that we all having different ter- temperaments and personalities, or also we have these same desires to be great, to be recognized, to be significant, and to matter. And this is easy to illustrate, really. Um, first of all, let's start with little kids. Uh, I coached Pop Warner football uh, one time when Dan was young. And uh, so I remember, I think the first time we got together, there was like 23, 24 kids there. And they're all standing around, you know, and we're uh, one of the questions I asked was, OK, well, so we need some linemen, some guys to, you know, hike the ball, some guys to block the guys whose names you never hear and things like that. They never get to carry the ball. They never get to be the stars. Who wants to do that? And they all stood there like this. OK, who wants to quarterback? Twenty three hands went up. Just like that, because they wanted, they want the significance. They want the recognition. They want to be better. As kids, men strive to set themselves apart in many ways. Sometimes just by their strength. Sometimes by their careers, their incomes, the size of their car engines. How fast they drive. This constant one-upmanship with men. Well, I'll do you one better. If you don't think this is true, just find two fishermen and sit down in between them and be quiet. (laughs) And women. Well, let me, let me, I'm not done with the men yet. So... So, you know, a, a, a testosterone contest between two men is insufferable. So can you imagine this times 12? And women, you don't escape this either. Because in unguarded moments, women can be dissing on some other women about their makeup or their clothes or their lack thereof. Or bragging about husbands or kids or grandkids or all those things. We're constantly, all of us, putting ourselves over and underneath, um, and others underneath ourselves. My grandmother used to say, even when, when nothing is said, she said this. She said, you know, every mother crow thinks her little crow is the blackest. 
We all desire greatness to be regarded, to be significant or to matter. Now, having said that, I realize, seriously, that some of you have been trampled down uh, by others pursuing their own greatness. So trampled down that you've just given up on even the thought. But it's not because you don't desire it. It's just because you've been given up on it, of ever achieving it. And so this rancor, this bitterness, this dismissiveness of others and putting ourselves over and others under us. James 3.16 says this something that should, should really straighten us all up when we think about this. It says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That's what happens in the competition for greatness on a worldly schedule. But let's notice, first of all, in this passage, that Jesus does not rebuke their desire, or actually any of the passages where this comes. Jesus does not rebuke their desire for greatness, but only their worldly understanding of it and their method of obtaining it. Why? Because God designed man for greatness. You and I were created for greatness. Adam was great. The first man, the prototype, made in the image of God. That can't be said of any angel, any living creature. I was reading in Revelation 4 this week, talking about the living creatures, one with the face of a man, one with the face of a calf, one with the face of a lion. And it says this, they had eyes all around and within, and six wings. These are some pretty outstanding things. None of them are made in the image of God. Adam was. And being made in the image of God is pretty great. Adam was put in charge of creation. He was put in charge of all of God's stuff. That's pretty great. But in Adam's quest to be like God, which, and this is a very important point, in Adam's quest to be like God, which he already was, he forfeited his greatness and fell into sin. And that's what we see here in Jesus' description of the kings of the Gentiles, right? He says they're lording it over, uh, you know, uh, over, over, the, uh, over others. They lord it over them and they congratulate themselves. They call themselves benefactors. And the original language there means do-gooders. They call themselves do-gooders. Have you ever noticed how politicians will fleece the taxpayers to raise money to, uh, you know, build a building and then name it after themselves? Jesus is not rebuking their pursuit of greatness, but the kind of greatness they're pursuing and the model of the kingdom that they have in mind, which is worldly. You know, Jesus in here even tells them and us how to, about coming, becoming truly great. So as we go through this passage today, we should keep in mind that our great King Jesus does not want to keep greatness from us but wants us to pursue the true greatness for which we were created and redeemed. 
And he does this by coming our, becoming our example first. So in contrast to the Gentile kings and their lording it over and exercising authority over their subjects, Jesus uses himself as an example. Okay, he says, verse 27, but I am, but I am among you as the one who serves. But I am among you as the one who serves. God has one true servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nation. I am among you as the one who serves. That's a statement of identity. That's a statement of not what Jesus could do, but who Jesus is. He says, I am. The one among you. And we, we make great note of that in other places in Scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine, the true vine. I am the bread of life. It's the exact same construction here. Jesus says, this is who I am. Earlier that night, Jesus had stooped down as a slave and washed their dirty feet. This wasn't a show or a performance of what Jesus could do, but a demonstration of what's in his heart and who he is. He is a servant. I wonder how many of us see the lowly service of Jesus as just kind of a thin veneer to make a point. That really, as king, Jesus' real desire is to be served. Do we understand and believe that the deepest desire of our king is to serve his people? How is greatness to be manifested in humble service? How can it be manifested in humble service? I'm going to give you a kingdom principle that I think helps us understand everything about this passage and more about our king. And it's essential that we understand our king before we can understand the kingdom. And here's the principle. Greatness increases as it descends in humility. The lower greatness, or you could say glory, the lower it goes, the greater it is in the kingdom. Jesus descended into the lowest parts, took on the form of a slave. And what does it say? The Bible says, wherefore God has highly exalted him as a result of his condescension. That's who he is. And that is how, by the way, that is how and both why the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Because the lowest becomes the greatest in the kingdom economy. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble. That is who he is. And what he enables us to be. And he promises, he says, 
that you will find rest for your souls. Rest from clawing our way up the world's deceptive promises of greatness that crumble underneath us faster than we can climb. And for us to seek kingdom greatness, we must understand and believe our King that His humble service is not just an act to make a point, but flows from who He is. Jesus is our example. But you know, God gave examples in the Old Testament. He said, here's my law, keep them. That did not work out well. So Jesus needs to be more than just our example. Jesus is also our enabler. So it must be with us. Jesus said, the greatest of you must become like a child. And the leader must become like the servant. Greatness begins with becoming, not doing. Becoming like Christ means dying to our sinful natures. Our sinful natures pursue our own kingdoms by our own means. They can't be retrained. They can't be redirected. They can't be reinvented. They must die so that the life of Christ, who is the one true servant of God, can live in us. Paul said this about his ministry, about the essential uh, nature of, of, of dying so that Christ might live in, 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 in his own ministry. In 2 Corinthians 14, he says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, get this, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. And later in Galatians 2.20 More directly, he said, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is only one way, folks, that we can become anything other than what we are. And that is through the transforming work of the resurrected Jesus Christ in our lives. By transformation, Jesus is calling us to become like him. And Jesus enables this transformation by the new birth. By moving into us so that we become like Him. You know, our new birth in Jesus is an amazing, amazing privilege that sets us apart for kingdom greatness. Listen to this. Jesus spoke of only one man who He said was great. John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a faithful, fearless preacher of the kingdom. And he attracted a lot of attention. As a matter of fact, at one time the people thought that he was great and asked him if he was the Christ. And he said no. But they wanted to elevate him. They wanted to celebrate him as a prophet. But he deferred. And he took the low place. And he confessed his unworthiness to even untie the thong of the sandal of the coming Savior. He rejected the celebrity offered to him and humbly proclaimed his own unworthiness. And this is what Jesus said about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been or not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How about that? Yet, there's more. 
There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Beloved, let that sink in. That should blow our hair back. That is you and me that Jesus is talking about. How could we possibly be greater than John? Well, like John, we were born of a woman, but we have been born again from above by the Spirit of Christ who has moved into us and so indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus Himself. Now, whereas John could describe the greatness of the coming Lord Jesus, we, by the Spirit of Christ, can live out that greatness in humble service to God and others. And so, share in that greatness and all that comes with it. All by the new birth. Jesus is not only our example, but our enabler. And Jesus is also our insurer of what's coming. The rewards of true greatness, as this passage teaches us, are secured for us. So much like he said about himself, I am, he said, you are those. That's an identity statement, too. He said, you are those who have stood with me in my trials in verse 28. That's an astounding statement. Jesus is incredibly gracious. and He's commending and preparing to reward them for their faithfulness to Him. Well, why were they faithful to Him? How could they be faithful to Him? He said, you didn't choose me in John fifteen sixteen. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen twelve, he said, while I was with him, Jesus praying to the Father said, while I was with him, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them and not one of them perished. So the answer is, how could they do these things? How could they be stand with Jesus in the trials? It's because Jesus had chosen them, Jesus had kept them, Jesus had guarded them, and determined that they would bear fruit. All work of His sovereign grace. And yet He's commending them. For it. And you know, this is a little bit ironic because we're talking about short time frames here because with just a matter, within a, just a matter of a few hours, those same guys that he was talking to, every last one of them would flee away from him. But yet he's commending them for having stood with him in trials. Wow. By his grace, by his calling, by his keeping. And so Jesus is promising rewards for the very things He Himself enables Him to do. God calls us to do things that we can't do. He supplies the grace for us to do them and forgiveness when we fail. And then rewards us for the things that He gives us. Wow. That's so encouraging. And this should give us a clue, really, uh, to the verses that lie ahead that our kingdom status is secured and guaranteed by our gracious King Himself. What is the confidence 
that our kingdom, that this kingdom will be ours, that kingdom blessing will be ours. Is it our performance? Is it our faithfulness? How do we know it is ours? Look down there in verse 29. Jesus said, just as the Father granted me, I grant to you. Just as the Father willed to me, just as the Father covenanted to me, just as the Father decreed to me, I do so to you. And so we have to ask ourselves, when and on what basis did the Father grant the kingdom to Jesus? And the answer is found in eternity past in the counsels of God. Psalm 2.6 says this, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's how God and when God granted the kingdom to Jesus. And he said the same way that God granted it to me, I'm going to grant it to you. Or I'm granting it to you. The kingdom was granted to Jesus in eternity by divine decree as an inheritance. Today you're my son. I have begotten you. I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So also, our guarantee of kingdom blessing comes not by our works or our faithfulness, but by eternal decree of inheritance from God. It's by our relationship to Jesus as an inheritance. And that's bulletproof. It belongs to us and how blessed we are. We're told to have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus in Philippians 2, that though He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. We're to have this attitude. Well, from equality with God to a bondservant, how does that happen? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because it's already His. You don't have to grasp after what is yours by inheritance. Jesus understood that He didn't have to grasp and strive for that which is already His. That understanding what was His and could never be taken away from Him freed Him to serve as a bondservant. And when we understand that the kingdom and its benefits have been given to us by covenant between the Godhead in eternity past and irrevocably, when we understand that, we are free from self-promotion, self-pursuit, in fact, free from the tyranny of self entirely to serve and realize The greatness for which we were redeemed. And that kingdom that's been granted us doesn't come grudgingly by a king, you know, who has some kind of obligation he really doesn't want to fulfill, 
uh, for unworthy recipients. No, listen to this from Luke 12:32. Jesus said, "Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom." We do not receive a kingdom from the reluctant hand of an obligated king. No, we get it just like Jesus did. From a father, from a loving father who is eager to give it to us, who gladly made the choice to give it to us. It was his idea. It was his choice. He is glad about giving it to us. This is not verse isn't merely about what God will do or has to do, but what he delights in doing. What gives him pleasure And the kindness and grace of our loving Father should astound us and melt our hearts at the same time. A man walked into a nice restaurant and quickly noticed a very busy young man cheerfully serving his customers. First welcoming them and seating them and taking orders and delivering the food and even slipping into the bathrooms to clean them. He was visibly more committed than any of his other fellow employees. And after watching this during the meal, the man, when he was paying his bill and checking out, he asked to the young man, he said, uh, you know, your commitment to serving here is, is really remarkable. You seem to be willing to do anything for anybody at any time. What's in it for you? He said, do you like, hope to own this place someday? And the young man smiled and shook his head and said no. And then the customer Asks, why then do you serve so energetically and cheerfully? And the young man smiled again and said, The reason I don't hope to own this place, this restaurant someday, is because I already do. You see, my father recently died and left it to me in his will. And all that remains is for the estate to be settled and the paperwork signed, and it'll be mine. My father, he said, Love people and serve them because he loved them. That was the example I saw and the heart that I inherited from him. My service is not so I can obtain this restaurant, but because it's already mine. Because in Jesus we are now inheritors by eternal covenant. It's all ours. It always has been. Listen to Matthew twenty five thirty four. Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It always has been ours. You don't have to strive for what's yours. We're free to serve. We're free to Engage in that service of greatness for which we are created and redeemed. But you know this morning, if that's not you, if you've not repented of your sins and fully trusted in Jesus Christ and and His saving work, none of this applies to you. No, you're still in a kingdom. You're in a crumbling, condemned kingdom of one. And I urge you instead to join we who are blessed 
of the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. We're freed from the tyranny of self to serve others because we already have it all. The eternal covenant of God and the work of Jesus secures it all. We were designed for true greatness. And Adam, in that desire, uh, it was corrupted and distorted. But by our Lord Jesus Christ, His example, His enabling life in us, and His promise of inheritance, we're guaranteed of the restoration of that greatness and all that goes with it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, um, for this text, and I thank you, Lord, that it directs us to, again, your Son and his gospel and the completeness of that gospel for everything that we need and, and, and to restore us, Lord, to all that was lost in the garden and so much more. So, Father, help this to sink into us, Lord, so that we are not like those around us. Jesus said it's not this way with you. Father, we might understand all has been won for us by our Savior so that we're free, free indeed to serve. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.